We're in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, and verse 6. <clears throat> now, to refresh our memory, the 13th chapter, he's making an issue about faith, that it is very crucial. Uh, I've written it on the board so that you can uh, look at it once in a while during our study this morning. It's crucial, faith is, to the survival as a believer in Christ. As the Bible says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's why we meet to refresh our remembrance of the Word of God. We look deeper into it. Uh, now the writer here, remember he's already uh, presented the heroes of faith in chapter 11. And uh, in chapter 12, he reminded us of the, of the finality of our faith is based on our following Christ. Look unto Jesus, he says in verse 2 of the uh, 12th chapter. Uh, Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the shame and sit down at the right hand of God. So uh, his message has been for three chapters anyway to impress these Hebrew people on the faith that's in Christ. And the fact that the Word of God being that faith, because that's where faith comes from, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And so consequently, uh, he's reminding them of the victory that we have in Christ is only by faith and not by sight. Uh, so, in chapter, in verse 6, he says, So we then with confidence, uh, we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now look at verse 5 that gives the reason why he said that. He said, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And here's why. Because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Now that has to be accepted by faith. And by faith you can see God's hand working. Uh, in uh, providentially in these things. And so, because he'll never leave us nor forsake us, verse 6 says, so that we can say with confidence, we can be very confident, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Now there's the serenity in God, the serene spirit that leans back and recognizes that this world is under the power and the authority of God Almighty and we don't have anything to worry about. Uh, so what can man do to me? And whatever he does to me is going to be by the allowance of God and it's going to be for my benefit, isn't it? Because he's already assured me in Romans study, Romans the 8th, 6th, the 8th chapter, that the suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that we'll one day receive. All right, so 
while, uh, what God says to his people becomes the source of their confidence and their confident response to him. And so what he's told us, the assurance that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, is it gives us the confidence to respond to him in service, in worship. And so you, when you see someone out of joint that's not responding to the grace of God, guess what his problem is? He has no confidence in God. He doesn't know to what extent God rules this world. He doesn't. That's his problem. Uh, and he has this confidence because of what God says. Uh, we're able to say, the Lord is my helper, verse 6 says. The Lord is my helper. Now, helper means someone right alongside of you, helping you, working with you in your personal life. The Lord is my helper. With God as our helper, there is nothing to fear from man. This tailor-made response of God's people uh, to his promises comes from Psalms 118, verse 6. 118, verse 6. In the original Hebrew uh, of this song, the writer claims God is on my side. I will not be afraid. Paul stated it this way uh, in Romans the 8th chapter and verse 31. He said, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? And so if God is for us, it matters not who is against us, does it? Doesn't matter at all. Because God is for us. Uh, but if God is against us, it matters not who uh, is for us. Psalms 118 is definitely a messianic psalm as it speaks of the man in Christ. It talks about the coming of Christ as the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. That's in verse 22 of that psalm. Psalm 118. Now, <laughs> If God could establish his covenant under all of the rejection of the Jews, the, the Romans and all of them, I think he pretty well rules this world, don't you? Can't you don't you get that idea? Just from that fact alone. Alright, so the builders were the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. Acts 4, verse 11. Somebody got that passage? One of you men got that passage. Corinthians 4.11. 4.11. They said Acts. Acts. Acts 4.11? Yeah. Acts 4.11. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Yeah, they were the builders, the Jews were, and the stone that they set at naught was Christ Jesus. And that was the head of the corner. Now, in the old architecture, if you look into that, back in that time, buildings generally stood on one or two pillars. That's why Samson asked that little boy. Samson was blinded, and he was brought out, and uh, the the, uh, the Phoenicians, it wasn't the Phoenicians, no, 
it was, uh, well, anyway, they was making mockery of God. And they was doing this in the temple of Dagon, their God. And so Samson said, take me to the pillars that the building rests on. And he got between them, and he prayed to God. And, and he got the strength to push those pillars over and collapse the whole building. And there was, he killed more that one time than he ever did in all of his life. And you remember he did kill when it, he was delivered to the Philistines earlier. Uh, in fact, he was singing his little song of victory and throwing bodies over in this pile and over in that pile. <laughs> yeah, it was the Philistines. Yeah. All right. So Messiah will build his kingdom in the day the Lord made. And it will be a day to rejoice and be glad in, verse 24 says. Now, just because you read the word day, it's not talking about a literal 24-hour period. This is the day of the Lord, and it stretches throughout centuries. <laughs> but it's his day. It's his day in the sun. Uh, all right, so Jesus taught the disciples, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Now, they had all these enemies. They had the Jews as enemies. Didn't like Christianity. Was out to stamp it away. The Romans was with them in this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. The writer then assures his people that there are stabilizing factors. Always build upon faith. Always build upon the promises of God, strong stabilizers in the midst of persecution and opposition. And so if you stabilize yourself, it's by faith in the face of strong persecution and and uh, and. Uh, opposition we live in a world we've been watching it for the last few dec uh, decades that's been rejecting God rejecting Christ don't want to have mention of him trying to kick the Bible out as though it was nothing and teaching evolution in the face of uh, God being the creator and all of that we've seen these oppositions to Christ we've witnessed them we've lived through them did anybody get hurt in it? Since God is for us, who or what can be against us? And as verse 5 says, Never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. We have that confidence by faith. So faith is still critical, and it's crucial to survival. If we're going to survive in this world, that's what it's going to be by is our faith, our assurance that God is with us. Uh, so he's telling these Hebrews they must never leave the faith principle. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's the nature of it. <coughs> Verse 7, 
I wanted to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into this. I think it's Daniel uh, 6 chapter, I believe it is. I'm not sure. But you remember the incident. We'll not turn over and read anything. But uh, you remember the incident. Uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar resurrected a golden image. And the people were commanded by the law of the Medes and the Persians. And that meant it could never be changed or altered. And anybody who failed to bow before that golden image was to be put into the fiery furnace. Well, it was set up by the enemy of God's people. The enemy that uh, was trying to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego killed because God blessed them boys with wisdom and knowledge. And they were ones who sat before the king and advised him on his governmental uh, duties and responses. And uh, so they didn't bow before that golden image. And the king came to them, and he was pretty... Uh, upset because he really liked these boys. They were captives that he took into captivity from Jerusalem, uh, but still he liked them because the man of God is a man who will be liked. The woman of God, the same. That because of, of their character, because they follow Christ, they can't help but be a light shining in a dark world in the way they live, the choices they make, the demeanor about their spirit, everything about them bespeaks of Christ because they've, they've been taught by him. They've, they've sat in Bible classes and they've read their Bible at home. And all of this adds up to them being uh, following Christ. They're the ones who look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Verse 2, chapter uh, 12 said. <coughs> so, uh, <laughs> you were at Nebuchadnezzar's rage. Yeah. So Nebuchadnezzar is pretty proud of these boys. And he knows he can't change it or alter it because this law was signed according to the Medes and the Persians. Couldn't be changed or altered at all for nobody. It's too bad they didn't have a law like that for Hillary Clinton and some of them other clowns up there. Anyway. Uh, the king come to him and he says, boys, I got to know, is it of purpose that you've done this? And if it is, who's going to deliver you out of my hand? He's kind of concerned about these boys, but he has no choice but to put them in the furnace. And their reply was a reply of faith. Who's going to deliver us? God is able. He didn't say God, the boys didn't say God would. He said, they said God is able. They didn't know the mind of God no more than you and I. But they declared that he's running this, these governments. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't stand a chance against him. They said God is able to deliver us. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, it doesn't matter, O king. We will not bow before your God. And so they looked the consequences in the face of burning in the fiery furnace heated seven times. 
That meant completely as much as the furnace would be allowed uh, without blowing up. And they looked life in the face and they was not afraid of what man could do unto them. And that's exactly what the writer here is admonishing them to do. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do unto me? If he takes your head off, what did he do? Send you home. He sent you home. If cancer gets you, he, you're sent home. So you're more than conquerors in Christ, aren't you? As Paul said in Romans 8. So faith is very critical and crucial to survival. And they must never leave this, this faith principle. That's why he's spent three chapters just on faith. He started out in chapter 11 defining faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Other translations says it a little different, says the same thing, but different. It says faith is being sure and being certain. Does faith have evidence? <coughs> well, yeah. Romans 1.20, the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen. How? How are they seen? Do they have evidence? that God created this universe. Yeah, the things that are made. In other words, he's presenting the fact that there's a design that demands a designer. And that designer had to be highly intelligent and all-powerful. There's no denying that. Except for these clowns today that want you to believe that you come from the slime in the sea, swung in a tree, and that's me idea called evolution. Verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Who was that? The apostles. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So is it, is it wrong to follow a, a man and his example? No, it isn't as long as it's, he's walking by faith. If that's it, uh, if God's word is His faith, you follow Him. Paul said to the Corinthians, "Follow me as I follow Christ." So there's nothing wrong with following a man, but here he talks about the leaders. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, the apostles were the ones that originally taught. That generation, the Word of God. Remember the book of Acts? And uh, he says to remember them. Uh, that probably that statement probably indicates that most of the apostles were dead by this time. Remember them. They've already been killed. The outcome of their life may well refer to the way in which they went to their death to confirm with their blood the validity of their message. Uh, they died in faith and for the faith. They died in faith and for the faith. They uh, deserve imitation. 
yeah, imitation. And we remember those, as that verse said, who are no longer with us. Because Jesus foretold the, uh, their violent death in John 16 and verse 2. You remember he told the apostles, you'll all suffer death for my sake. They knew they were under the pronouncement of death. That proved their faith, didn't it? Didn't it? Certainly did. It's not natural. It's not normal a man dies for uh, a lie that he's advocated or a big story or something. And these men proved the validity of their message and their faith in the message. So he, <clears throat> so remember their faith held them strong and how it anchored them even in that period of time when they were destroyed for their faith. <coughs> Many of the readers were personally acquainted with some of the apostles, and they saw how they, one after the other, stood up in the face of opposition, persecution, and ultimately of death. Consider how their lives issued them to victory, and you imitate their faith is his admonition to these Hebrews. And so remember those men that had the responsibility, the leadership, the authority over you in times past. And not only did the Old Testament uh, have its heroes of faith, but so did the New Testament. In verse 17, which will uh, it'll be a part of our next lesson, the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. These men are the elders and bishops of the church that were ordained by the Holy Spirit to be the feeders of the Lord's church. Acts 20 and verse 28. Remember how Paul met with the elders at Ephesus down in Miletus? He couldn't go back there because he destroyed the goddess Diana, the goddess of sex, and there was $200,000 worth of books dedicated to this uh, goddess of sex burned in the street in protest uh, to the immorality that they were wrapped up in because uh, that goddess of Diana was, it began to spread throughout the world from Ephesus. That was the heart and the center of it. And in Acts 20, Paul called in verse 7, he called the elders from Ephesus down to Miletus on his way back to Jerusalem because he couldn't go back there, he'd get killed. So he called for them men and they come down, these elders, and in verse 28 he told those elders, he said, you take heed unto yourselves and unto the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you to be overseers. Feed the church of God which God purchased with God's blood. So, so they, these men are the elders or bishops of the church that were ordained by the Holy Spirit to be feeders of the church. And they are still alive and are to be obeyed. These are church leaders of today because those leaders of the past, the apostles, have already gone to their reward. And uh, they went there victoriously, maintaining their faith even if their physical life was not preserved. 
they were removed from the scene uh, would produce some instability in the part of the believers uh, because our leaders are disappearing. And so the writer tells us in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. <laughs> so the ever-present reality of Jesus is a stabilizing force of a Christian's faith. Follow these men who had faith, but recognize that Jesus is the one you're to look to. Remember the 12th chapter, verse 2? Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Well, here, Jesus is the force of a Christian's faith because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. So we can put our faith in him, can't we? And he is the one to whom we look. He's the one to whom we have our vision fixed. Remember chapter 12, verse 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, this translation says, of our faith. <coughs> uh, though the earth uh, scenes of leaders may change, Jesus is always the same. It says yesterday and today and tomorrow. Uh, simply declares his eternal presence with his people. Revelation presents him as he who was and is and is to come. In Malachi 3 and verse 6, the Lord declares, I, Jehovah, change not. And so his unchangeable nature is the only stabilizing influence in a world that's racked by change. We've seen a lot of change in just the last couple of years, haven't we? We've been watching it all the time. A world that changes. Worlds and kingdoms that change around. We, we watch world uh, news. And we see the changes that comes about amongst men here on the earth. But Jehovah says, I, Jehovah, change not. He don't change. So, uh, so his unchangeable nature is only stabilizing influence in a world that's wrapped by change. The earth scene is forever changing. Each personalities uh, are forever going to be uh, re uh, in rev uh, revolution and changing one after the other. But the heavenly seems stable. It is not shaken by change. Hebrews 1 and verse 8, it says, But about the Son, he saith, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. In that context, it is affirmed that the earth is wearing out, but Jesus remains forever unchanging Lord. Master. <coughs> Of his writing. 
and he's leaving several admonitions with them that they need desperately to know. And here in verse 9 he says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Now there was a lot of strange teachings, wasn't there? We've already been introduced to quite a few of them just in other studies that we've had in Romans and different places of that time frame. Uh, so here, uh, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Uh, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial food, which are of no value to those who eat them. And so here was these uh, pagans wrapped up in ceremonial foods uh, and all kinds of superstitious stuff. Uh, remember, the pagans, if you study their religions, every one of them was concluded how? In a sexual act. Seems strange to me, but that's one of them strange doctrines. And here's another one. Uh, some of the strange teachings were presented in verse 4 about the subject of marriage. You remember that study in verse 4? Uh, there was doctrines that was being suggested uh, to tell us that the relationship in marriage is unholy. Remember that? And that's why he admonished them about marriage. Such false doctrines teach that the only way to be pure is to separate from any marriage relationship. And evidently, incipient uh, Gnosticism is, was creeping into the church and threatening its family life. Now, we talked a little bit about that. The monks, remember, everybody knows about the monks. We saw them in the Vietnam War. They poured gasoline on themselves and set themselves afire and burned before the camera and stuff. Those are monks. And they had this idea that purification come from abstaining from marriage. And uh, you didn't dare eat anything that tastes good because you was appealing to the body and they were punishing the body because it was evil. And so they slept on thorns, and they lived in caves up on the mountain. They suffered the cold and the heat and different things uh, to punish the body. And these are some of the doctrines that he's, right, he's dealing with here, and one of them had to do with marriage. Uh, so in this verse, it has to do with the very physical food relative to the priests and their tabernacle privileges of eating of the sacrifices from the altar. Now their food was physical, these priests. But the Christian's food is spiritual. And that's his point. But the spiritual upon the physical part of the man is sustained by God's grace. The spirit, not the physical, is sustained by God's grace. you got to feed the man, don't you? How long can you go without eating food for the physical man? Not very long. How long can you go without feeding the spiritual man? Not very long. Those who refer return to the Hebrew system, uh, 
and those were the ones that the writer was writing to, uh, there now are not all profited by their ceremonial foods. In verse 10, the writer will present the spiritual contrast that Christ offers his people. Uh, because in verse 10, he says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The cross of Christ is our altar. That brings to Christians spiritual privileges that the old Hebrew system, uh, now defunct, could only speak about in predictive, shadowy form. And so everything in the Old Testament was, again, shadows of real realities. The Old Testament did speak of the glorious festival, festive banquet of heavenly food, but always for the age to come, which was with Messiah. Uh, Jesus did not come to supply daily bread for man. That wasn't his purpose. That he, was, uh, that he was already providing as the creator God. So because he's a creator, he already provided food for us, didn't he? Does he have to come and set your table and, and wash your silverware and put it out for you? And pick up your hand and make you eat? No. He's the provider. He's the creator. He made this world. And so it's not talking about that. But he did teach his people not to be concerned about what they will eat, drink, or wear. Now we're going to take a little time here and read some of these passages in a moment. Pagans worry about these things. Pagans worry about what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. Such concerns would be contradictory for a Christian. Jesus promised that if Men place the kingdom of God and his righteousness first in their lives, then all their needs of a physical nature will be supplied by God's providence. You believe that? <coughs> well, I've seen it proved. I've seen it in life's way. But let's look at the passages. Let's turn over to Matthew 6. And let's read verse 25. Well, we'll just read down through there a little bit. Matthew uh, 6. Here's the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. This is when Jesus began his ministry. Uh, so chapter 6 and... Oh, let's start about verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Take no thought? <coughs> That's what he said. For your life. What, in other words, what you shall eat or the body, uh, nor yet for the body what you shall put on. And then he asked this question, is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? We put our uh, concerns on things that are trivial, don't we? And are secondary. 
And then he proves it. He says, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, and neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What's he saying? God feed you. God take care of you. He's already said in here in our study this morning, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, and he asked the question, Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, and neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Because God dresses them, every one of them. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Those are cutting words, aren't they? We don't have much faith in God. But he will provide. The Lord will provide. And therefore, verse 31 is a conclusion. Therefore, take no thought saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father, he knows that you have need of all these things. He knows exactly what you need. He knows when your pantry is empty. He knows when your butt's hanging out of ragged clothes and needs a change or whatever. <laughs> but seek ye first of most important. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. What things? Food, raiment, whatever you need because God knows what you need. Uh, and so verse 34 is another conclusion here. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take care of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You got your hands full with what you got to deal with today. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's a lot of young fellows that probably worrying about what they're going to do for a job that works out at Hanford or around in places like that where they might get run off for not having the, the shot. Well, the Christian don't worry about those things. It's out of his hands anyway. If they want to uh, fire you for your stance against that, that's up to them. And if they do, you have no worry because God will provide. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll provide. I worked construction all my life. I never did work in, for one employer. One job after another, after another, after another for 80-something, well, 60-something years, I guess. The Lord provided. He provides. He didn't lie to you. He didn't say there's a whole bunch of rules here that you're going to have to comply with. You just need to have faith in God. you got to believe that He is a provider. But men are like Jesus described there. Uh, in uh, verse 30, O ye of little faith. Because we're used to walking by sight, aren't we? We just don't know what it is to walk by faith. 
Well, I'm not teaching this necessarily. I'm just referring to it here uh, because a Hebrew writer does. But uh, he's not suggesting that you just lay down out here. Well, the Lord's going to provide. He has provided. He has provided. Where do these big factories come from? Where did the technology that they've gotten rich on come from? Has God provided for the humankind? Oh, yeah. There was a time back in the 17th century, I believe it was, when uh, the, uh, the smart men of the world, they looked upon the scene and they said, in another hundred years, uh, man's going to starve to death because be, the population will grow to the point that it will be so big that uh, the earth can't bring forth the groceries for him, and the farmer doesn't have the ability to farm for him because he's following a couple of horses plowing a field. Well, where do we get the big old plows, uh, 20 of them hooked to the back of a cat pulling across a mountainside? Where did we get the idea of and the technology of these combines? The levels themselves right out. They got air conditioning. They got music. And they'll... They'll take out a, what is it, about a 40-foot swath, something like that. Now, where did all that come from? Oh, smart men come up with that. No, they didn't. God's been with us all the way. We have our part to do, and he has his part. And so we're industrious, but we, in the final analysis, we rely on God. He's the provider. And so we don't have any worries what man shall do unto us or what this world thinks it's going to do to us. We're secure, aren't we? There's something else I want to say before we move on. We've watched uh, our government meddle around in arresting some preachers in religion today here in America because they had their people come unmasked. I guess that's the best way to describe it. You need to take note that that was not the Lord's church. Those churches that suffered that was not the Lord's church. They don't even teach the new birth into the kingdom. How can they be the Lord's church? But my point is this. Uh, they ask for their recognition by the world. Those preachers of those churches, those members that got arrested and things, pushed the issue in the government's face. We didn't. The church of our Lord is kind enough and is focused enough that they're following Christ. They're not following men. And so they're not out there looking for popularity and they're not looking to have their face on television. But some of them are, not the Lord's people. And they was arrested because of that. Now, if you want to stand up boldly against the government, go right ahead, because you still got Romans 13, obey the higher powers, for there is no power but God. And the power that be is ordained by God. And the warning is, you obey them, because they, God didn't give them that sort of authority in vain. He, he didn't give them a literal sword. He, the sword stands for the idea of authority, and they'll use it on you. 
But those play, those religious people that went to prison, went to jail because they didn't comply, was the ones that put it in the government's face and pushed the issue to where the government had to do something to them. But has the church been bothered? <laughs> Not at all. And of course, if God seen fit to let them bother us, it would be to manifest our faith. It wouldn't be a hurtful thing, would it? Now, it may be hurtful within itself to us, but in the overall picture, it would be a blessing, wouldn't it? Because it would manifest something to Benton City, wouldn't it? They'd see our faith, wouldn't they? After all, we're like set on a hill. <laughs> Let's go over and read Luke's account of this, and then we'll move on. Luke 12, verse 29 through 31. Luke 12, beginning in verse 29. Seek, seek not ye what ye shall eat, and what ye shall drink, and neither be of doubtful mind. Why? For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that ye have need of these things. He knows you, doesn't he? He knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows you. He knows more about you than you know yourself. And he knows what you need. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So what's the first thing you seek? You put the kingdom first. Doesn't mean you abandon your work or your <coughs> uh, vocation or your business. It just means that that comes second to worship and serving the Lord. That's what it means. Fear not, little flock, for all is your father's good pleasure. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the father takes pleasure in giving you the kingdom. He takes pleasure in seeing to your needs. He knows what they are. Okay, that's far as we want to go with that. So Jesus promised that if men, uh, men place the kingdom of God and his righteousness first in their lives, then all their needs of a physical nature will be supplied by God's providence. And they are. Now you might have to go out and drive around and ask if they need a welder or whatever craft you are. You, you might have to go and exert yourself to get a job, but they're out there. Right now, there's more jobs than there are people wanting to work and fulfill them jobs. Of course, that's God's way of showing the stupidity of man. Here, the president's giving them more money than they can make weekly. <laughs> Wondering how come the wheels of industry have stopped over here. And they're so dumb, they can't figure it out. Now, doesn't that tell you something about the wisdom of man? You remember 1 Corinthians study? Uh, when did we study that? Wednesday night? Yeah. 
You remember chapter 1? Paul said that God chose the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Uh, and uh, so, and it says that God brings to naught the wisdom of the wise. Is he bringing to naught the wisdom of those men who think they're so wise? Do you know that in Washington you couldn't even get off a dead center getting a job up there unless you had a degree out of college? You couldn't. So what does what does Washington, D.C. so uh, and Congress and all of that? What does it represent? Man's top intelligence. And look how foolish that is. <laughs> we got got a president that's speaking in behalf of the, of Congress and Senate and all them people up there, and he's showing man's stupidity, isn't he? Is God making mockery out of them? Can you see it? If you do, it's by the eye of faith that you see it because you've been reading this book and you know who's in control. All right. So uh, here he's using, the, the writer's using the language of Leviticus chapter 3 where the sacrifice of the peace offering terminated uh, its ritual with a festival banquet celebrated in the courtyard of the tabernacle between God and his officiating priests. So here was a physical feast, and it foreshadowed the spiritual sacrificial banquet that Jesus provides for his people. Uh, our time's up. I want us to go and look at these, uh, what the Lord said about what's provided for his people. Let's look well, let's look at two of them and then we'll stop there. Matthew 22, 1-14. Matthew 22, 1-14. <clears throat> And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parable. And he said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. And again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them uh, which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my uh, fatlings are killed and all things are ready coming to the marriage but they made light of it and they went about one to his farm and the other to his merchandise and the remnant took his servants and in, uh, entreated them uh, spitefully and slew them but when the king heard thereof he was wroth and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those uh, murderers, and brought up, uh, and burned up their city. Uh, then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which are bidden were not worthy. So go ye therefore into the highways, 
and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. And so those servants went out into the highways and again, uh, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king come in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how came, camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? <coughs> and he was speechless. And then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Also, you can read the Luke's account of it in Luke 12. We're not going to turn over there, but it says about the same thing. A little bit different way, but same thing. Luke 12, verse 29 through 31. Uh, the peace offering uh, in Leviticus was a ceremony uh, where the Hebrew family could come to the tabernacle where God would host them in a kind of a physical banquet under the old system. It was called a peace offering. And as such, it would celebrate a period of intensive fellowship between God and man, and they would eat of the sacrificial animal in a banquet <coughs> that God himself hosted. <coughs> That's what we read about at this marriage feast, a thing that God had hosted. He planned before he ever made the worlds. This was not to be hosted in the home of the worshiper. God was the host, and it was his, it was he that provided the banquet. It was spiritually analogous to the feast uh, the father prepared for the prodigal son uh, that you read about in Luke, the 15th chapter. When the prodigal son came home, the father celebrated the joyous reunion with his son, he had a banquet, and the father hosted the banquet. Well, the father in the context is God in that picture. The prodigal son is the unfaithful, temporarily unfaithful child of God who has come back home. God has welcomed him back. His, he's forgiven his sins and celebrated this great banquet. And so the writer here tells us, uh, uh, well, we have an, a, a, an altar and God is celebrating a wonderful banquet of spiritual food with us. Jesus brings to us food that will delight the soul of a man. He has told us in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that blessed are they that hunger and thirst as he used physical appetite to define spiritual qualities. Well, that brings us to verse 12, and I'm going to stop right there. Verse 12. Today's the seventh. I guess it is. Somebody wrote it on the board. Thank you. 